Welcome to episode 351 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Last month, I attended the National LGBT Chamber of Commerce Annual Conference. The purpose of this event is to connect LGBT certified business owners like me to corporate partners committed to hiring diverse suppliers. During the event, I kept tweaking and tweaking how I introduced myself. My business changed dramatically in March 2020, and for a couple of years, I was solely focused on virtual events. It took a lot of creativity, trial and error, and persistence to figure out what I know now about creating WOW virtual events. In 2022, one of my clients, Feeding America, moved a couple of their annual conferences back to in-person, and I made the transition with them as their event design consultant. But then I neglected to tell anyone else how I could support their in-person event and proceeded to write a book about Zoom. So it's not surprising that I'm known as a Zoom guy, but many of my followers don't know about the decade I spent speaking about networking at events, including writing a book, writing for HBR, and doing a TEDx. To solve for that, this is the new way I introduce myself. I partner with in-house event teams to design inclusive, engaging, and transformational virtual and in-person event experiences. I aim to lower their stress while helping them meet their and their participants' goals. If that sounds intriguing, I'd love to schedule a chat about your upcoming event, whether it's virtual or in-person, I'm sure I can make a difference. Next, a word from our sponsor, and then we'll dive into this week's interview. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Today's guest knows that if you want to build a better future, you've got to build a better now. He shares new angles on how any one of seven unique directives builds self-esteem in moments, increases focus, and improves how we show up today as leaders, team members, and communicators. He's a dynamic and engaging professional speaker utilizing humor and juggling to make his ideas stick with his audience. He's spoken in 27 countries, including tours across Russia, Iceland, Europe, and Australia. I've had the pleasure of witnessing his high energy and highly entertaining virtual presentation skills. A renaissance man, he's also an award-winning documentarian with films screened on all seven continents. He started and still runs an international humanitarian nonprofit that supports Haiti and was even the lead singer and lyricist for touring punk band. Please join me in welcoming Greg Benick. Hey, Greg. Hi. Thank you so much. I love that introduction. It's 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 amazing. I I you, so you're happy. amazing. No, you're amazing. This is this is incredible. What's well, funny, you know, we all do lots of things, and if any listener heard the biography of their life 
no matter what it was, had a job for 20 years, raised two kids, went to college, bought a car, bought a different car. It would seem like a lot. And when you're reading yeah. my bio, I'm like, it seems like a lot, but I'm remembering all the things. So it's <laughs> kind of fun. Well, thanks for joining us from your place in uh, Seattle, Washington. Thrilled to have you on the show. Uh, as you know, this is a show about building strong networks and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? You know, leadership is about empathic listening and also having directives rooted in experience. So it's a combination of those two things. It's having the experience to offer directives to people, but not orders. And it's about working with other people from the perspective of really empathically listening to them. And if you can somehow weave empathic listening with directives that come from experience, you have the potential to lead and lead well. And I think about the people who do lead well, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on uh, on the spot just for a second. Okay. When, when you and I worked on the virtual keynote that I, I was the keynote speaker and you were behind the scenes working your production wizardry, there's no other way to describe it. I watched you do something that people rarely can do, which is direct and, and almost, I don't want to say order, but direct, like, I think it was a dozen people about how to set up their virtual, how to appear on camera, ways to approach the virtual environment. And you did it with this empathic listening and these directives for them that were rooted in immense amounts of experience. And you were immediately the leader without being forceful. You were immediately the leader without being demanding. You were empathically listening to people's concerns about what do I look like? Is this okay what I'm wearing? Is the lighting okay? Do I sound okay? Am I too short, too tall? Should I stand lean this way? You were so helpful for all 12, as I remember, maybe even more, I can't recall, of those people you were a leader in the classic sense. Every single person felt empowered by your empathy and by the, the, the confident directives that you offered. So when a leader is like you, <laughs> they, they end up in a situation where everyone feels empowered. And you certainly did that for all of us on that call. So I'm throwing that out there as, a, as an example for people that if you I want to be- it. <laughs> of course, of course, of course. If you want to be a good leader, I think it's essential to listen well. I think it's essential to, you know, just offer your expertise, but to do so in a way that people end up feeling like it was almost like the idea was in them all along. And I think that that's certainly, certainly what you offered. So when I realized to the second part of your question that I could be a leader, it was early on in life and it wasn't with the fullness of the definition even that I just offered about empathic listening. I mean, I was a kid basically, but I uh, am descended from a mom who's an incredible speaker, an incredible communicator, an empath uh, empathic listener, and, and somebody who uh, really embodies the, the definition that I gave a few minutes ago. And growing up, I realized that I had the capacity at least to speak and that things like debate, or being in front of a room didn't intimidate me. And I thought, okay, if I can speak and I can command a room and I can share stories effectively and speak clearly, maybe I could add in the other things that my mom is as well. Basically, I just wanted to be like <laughs> my mom and, and speak effectively and speak in a way that was empowering to people. And that's when I got the barest 
inklings of, of leadership was from being able to command a room and speak to people in a way which was generous, for lack of a better word. I appreciate your definition and that example. Um, you know, empathic listening, I haven't heard that phrase. I mean, I feel like in a long time, it's been a while. I love that you're sort of focusing our, ten our attention on it. And, uh, and thank you for your kind words. I mean, this is how you and I got to first meet was through that event. We've since connected a few times other ways. Um, but it's, it's one, it is one of those moments when like two professionals like find each other doing their best work. It, it is a magical moment. Um, I'm curious how old you were at the point where you started to like get into speaking and thinking about this for yourself. Like is this high school, is this college? Like how young were you? Yeah, younger. I was, uh, I was probably in sixth or seventh grade at the latest, probably sixth grade. Because when I was in sixth grade, uh, I learned, uh, it's going to sound like I've lost my mind, but I learned how to juggle. And when I learned how to juggle, it was the first time that I ever could do something that other kids couldn't do. I'm not adept at sports. I'm not a football player, a baseball player, a racquetball player. I, I, I could probably throw darts. But I mean, other than that, I'm not very sports-based. But when I learned how to juggle, which is a story in and of itself, all of a sudden I could do something that other kids couldn't do. So kids were turning to me, looking at me, watching me do this thing, and it put me in a performative position uh, and a performative meaning, like literally, perf literal performance, where I was, uh, I was offering something that I had as a, a, a talent or skill to share, and people were watching me. And in that theatrical sort of relationship, I started to communicate. And then I thought, okay, well, maybe I can you know, do that in other ways. And I remember joining debate, like I mentioned earlier, and, and that sort of thing. And, and that's where it all started to come together. I mean, I did my first professional performance as a, a, a juggler when I was uh, 13 years old. I think I just had turned 13. So that's where it all started for me. I'm curious what you were like on the playground, like before that, in those earlier years, like on, on uh, like in, in uh, grade school, like it sounds like you were kind of, were you kind of quiet? You hadn't quite found your voice yet? I remember, juggling? I remember my friend Brent and I would walk around at recess and talk. We would talk about like politics or things that we heard in the news or we would talk about like the dynamics in the school or the cool kids we would literally just talk it was kind of like you know the the old movie my dinner with andre but on the playground and i think these like two little kids just like walk around conversing and like pontificating about things yeah i was really just in my head i just spent my time with you know just books and encyclopedias and things and i just i was I, I guess I was vocal, but I never really connected it with any sort of performance or theatrical in, endeavor, really. I think it, it just uh, it was just me thinking and talking about things. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, I played games and, and whatnot with, with friends, but it, I wasn't the kid on the playground who was, you know, alpha-ing, if that's a word, <laughs> being the yeah. alpha kid on the playground and making sure that I was on the kickball team or the baseball team or the whatever team. I mean, I, I tried and failed at baseball and soccer too i remember you know <laughs> yeah i mean case in point the soccer the soccer stories actually it just came to me i haven't thought about this in a while but i joined a soccer team and i mean i might have been in fourth grade or something and i remember running down the field and everyone was yelling like you know i'm open i'm open kick it to me or whatever and i started running down the field and i realized as i was running down the field that if the player with the ball kicked it to me that i would either continue on and score a goal or that i would not and that ultimately either of those outcomes was essentially irrelevant given given kind of like the fundamentally like meaningless nature of what we were doing, which is playing oh a game. Gosh. And as I'm running on the field, I'm like, 
there's no purpose to be doing this. You're like a nihilist. I quit. I, yeah, I quit. I was like this like little nihilist, like I probably a nihilist fourth grader soccer yeah, player. Yeah, existentially, like, you know, just completely upset and just, uh, yeah. And, and then I ended up quitting soccer. I haven't thought about that in forever, but it's absolutely wow. true. So anyway. I mean, I, I like hearing that story because it has some sense of like where you started, right? And like your journey from that point. So, so you know, 12, 13 years old, you're learning how to juggle. Did you have a sense at that time what you wanted to do later in life? career-wise like okay is there a path laid out in front of you by your family by expectations by your own like interests like wh what was the the plan certainly so so my parents both have advanced degrees and they have uh just carved their own way through life but they certainly were advocates for master's degrees and that sort of thing and i had one intention and one intention only which was uh, my real interest was coins i loved collecting coins as a little kid and i wanted uh to collect coins and i actually went to an uh, a junior high school middle school that had after school courses in uh baseball and uh knitting i mean all sorts of hobbies and sports and different things you could take after school mini courses well i petitioned the school for there to be a coin collecting class and went through all of these hoops in order to make sure there was a coin collecting class and when i signed up for the coin collecting class the school secretary signed me up accidentally for juggling by mistake and I showed up in that juggling class on the first day, and my life was essentially over. I mean, I was not going to be a coin collector anymore, which is what I dreamed of. I was just going to be this juggler. I mean, I thought this was ridiculous. And when I walked into the class, there was a young boy in the class, and he was juggling three white baseballs. And I will never forget, he was about 10 feet in front of me. And as he's juggling these three white baseballs, the look of wonder on his face, I looked at the juggling balls aloft. I looked at him. And I said to myself, that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. And that was it. Like, that was it. All of a sudden, here's the signature story that was real. And it was me. And I went home and I had this mission in life. And I just started practicing all the time because given that I wasn't adept and good at sports and, you know, I was existentially, you know, on, on a crash course to, you know, nihilism and nowhere, uh, I found in juggling a sense of meaning and a sense of purpose. And I saw it as, as something that was quite wonderful that I could do that was really inspiring. So that was the point. What happened really, to the coin collection? <laughs> so here's the, the funny part of the story. I have continued throughout my entire life to collect coins to the point where today I'm on the board of a national coin organization. I write regular columns on coins for coin magazines. I leave this weekend for a week long coin convention in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And most of my spare time, whenever I have it is spent reading about studying, learning about and collecting coins to this day. So you didn't actually have to let go of that dream. I love that you managed to keep it with you and that you're you, you have leadership roles and not deep commitment to that, that part of your interest. Um, you know, the, the juggling thing, I, I have a little story to tell. I, I joke, so I would do these like two hour presentations from three to 5 p.m. all the time. That was like the time slot that I, I asked for and I got, and it's all about networking. And I would joke, I'll do everything but juggle for them. because like, I don't know how to juggle, but I do know how to juggle with the sticks. Uh-huh. So I was trying to impress someone. <laughs> <laughs> what else you learn? And I remember chasing myself around the backyard trying to do it and then getting good enough to do it like over a bad betting net and then getting good enough to do it above the like power line and the tree branch I love and it. getting it to come back to me. 
So even today, like if I walking by, like if I go to Renaissance Fair randomly and I see the sticks, I can get right into it. So I, I, it is funny how you can really work to learn something, but you managed to take what some would have considered, you know, a, a party trick. I mean, not even like a thing people do for the rest of their life, but like a kind of fun party trick. And you've woven it into your speaking business. But I was, I'm curious what happened between, you know, 13 when you first learned this and today, which is how I know you. Did you go to college and have a, you know, job like a J-O-B? Like, was there a path like that? Or did you really immediately kind of continue down the path of speaking? So I started down the path of being a comedy juggler and entertainer. And I continued doing that throughout my entire life until I added in speaking. So that's been how I've made a living throughout my entire life. Um, All right, hold on, hold on. I got to interject here. Who did you know who was in that business when you first got started? I knew the two guys who taught the course at uh-huh. the, at the, in the sixth grade, when I was in sixth grade, there were two local guys, uh, Mike and Morris, they called themselves molecular manipulation. Uh, looking back to that year, if I can imagine what they were in my mind, there were these adults who knew how to juggle and they were the coolest adults on the planet. They were probably a couple of hippies who agreed to like teach juggling at the local elementary school to get money for pizza and, you know, I don't know, snacks. I have no idea. Um, but they, but we, they, we've kept in touch over the years. I, I keep in touch with the two of them. They're continuous, continuously, there's no other word, flabbergasted at how far I've taken this, right? So when I'll, I'll message them and say, hey, I'm in Singapore, I'm doing a juggling keynote for some you know, tech company. They're like, what are you even talking about? We taught you how to juggle when you were 12. <laughs> like, how is this happening? Uh, but yeah, it's happening. So I, I didn't know anybody else in the industry until maybe I was 15 and I got my first my first regular steady job at an amusement park and I met some magicians and uh, started to fall into the magic community and met met some magicians and uh, and actually some magicians who to this day in the magic community or rather this day now in the magic community are magicians of note but back then we were just a bunch of guys performing at an amusement park in the middle of Connecticut um, yeah, I didn't really so you know. Just, I mean, you, you're a very committed person. The fact that you're still doing all those things with the coin collection uh, and this, that you're still doing juggling. Uh, is there anything else that you started at a young age that you're like? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know, my involvement in, in music, I've, I've sung in, in punk bands and whatnot my entire life, too. And I, I like the idea of expression having multiple forms, right? I like the idea that, you know, I can be on stage and doing a keynote or I can be on stage, you know, with, with a keynote that includes, you know, comedy, juggling, shouting at people. I mean, it's or, different forms of expression. Or there's different forms of expression, right? Because the thing is, none of us, none of us have a uniquely, um, I don't even know what the word is, singular, maybe singular approach to living, right? You and I are communicating in a very specific way for this episode. And maybe we'd communicate differently if we were sitting having a Sprite in a bar or whatever we'd be doing, right? You know, we'd communicate differently. We'd we'd connect differently. Or if we're having dinner with a bunch of friends or if we were at a whatever, whatever event, so the point is, is that I, I like exploring those different forms of expression in, in my life, and especially when they involve creativity. Um, but I do want to say, before I forget, that something you mentioned is important. The dedication, which is not uniquely mine, I think is a really important aspect of leadership, too. We tend to have um, faith in leaders when they give us the sense that they are dedicated. 
because sometimes we might be on a team and we might not be dedicated. So if we sense dedication in the person who is offering empathy or direction, it gives us certainly a sense of uh, involvement and a, a, a sense of buy-in to the cause. Yeah. I, I mean, most people, you know, they might dabble in magic or dabble in juggling. I loved magic when I was in, you know, in camp as a kid and a preteen, um, but they don't commit to it. They're, like you said, there's a certain dedication, um, commitment to, to, the, to the ongoing effort to keep getting a little bit better, a little bit better. But I'm curious how that then became a career path. Did your family have, you know, support around this? Like you're 18, 19 years old. You're like, nope, I'm going to keep doing this. Like how, how, they're like, doctor? And you're like, nope, juggling comedian. <laughs> Lawyer? Nope, juggling comedian. Like, you know. So yeah. how, do, how do you sort of balance expectations? You're, you said you're suburban Connecticut, right? Yeah, yeah, okay, rural, so, rural Connecticut. Rural, yeah. rural Connecticut. Okay, so rural Connecticut, you don't know a lot of kids doing the things you're doing. Like this no. isn't, you know, where, where do you get notoriety? You can go to work at your local, you know, play the, the fairs that are happening in town or something like that. So amusement parks, how do you, how do you see a path from rural Connecticut to this being a livelihood? Well, you know, I started doing shows right away. You know, I was 13, just after my 13th birthday. I remember I performed at this girl Katie's birthday party. She was lived across the street. And I remember uh, writing Greg's magic juggling bag on a uh, paper bag. And inside I had tennis balls and I don't even know what else I had to juggle. But I walked over to her house and I juggled at this birthday party. And I made $5 for 15 minutes. And it was all the money in the world. I remember going home with that $5 bill and it was all the money in the world. Now keep in mind, this is decades ago and minimum wage at the time in Connecticut was somewhere around $3, $3.50 an hour or some ridiculous thing by modern standards. And I remember thinking, I just made more than four times minimum wage for 15 minutes of work. This is just like mind boggling to me. Right. Um, or rather, you know, almost, you know, given 15 minutes of work, the equivalent of uh, yeah. you know, multiples of minimum wage. So I, uh, I started doing shows and what I started to do in order to do shows was I had business cards made. They said, uh, Greg Benick entertainment for all occasions, private, uh, juggling for all occasions, Greg Benick juggling for all occasions, private lessons given and my phone number. Um, and I started handing them out. I handed them out at the school. I handed them out at local churches and businesses and just spread the word growing up in a rural town of maybe seven thousand six thousand people i don't even know meant that i was oh yeah that's the bennett kid he's the juggler it, word spread because there weren't any other jugglers other than the two guys who taught me how but uh all of a sudden i was this young kid so i got invited to the town parade and i got invited to this school i got invited to this church yeah so by the time i was i was going to uh college i had a conversation with my parents who were advocates for college and we had a conversation. They both thought, you know, you can, you can land back on this, but maybe it's a good idea. And I remember my father being practical and quite wise and telling me, you know, you can land back on this, but go to college for something, go do something. So I went to Syracuse University for all of one year. And with all love due to Syracuse, at the time, it was a pretty hard partying school and I didn't drink. And it, I, I just wasn't a big, like I said, sports person. So I dropped out and, uh, did a year's apprenticeship with a theatrical mask maker in Connecticut and learned how to make masks and perform theatrically with masks and learned about masks as metaphor for the masks we wear. And then at the end of that year, uh, 
he asked me, his name is Larry Hunt. He asked me, uh, what are you going to do next year? I had no idea. He suggested, why don't you go out to Seattle? My friend works at a college out there, an art school. Maybe you could audition and get in. And I came to Seattle and auditioned for art school and got into theater school. And the rest is history. I just kept performing, focusing on theater. Uh, and from theater, I don't mean as an actor, but more as a performer with theatrical capabilities and just took my career in that direction, meaning I kept doing juggling shows and made them more dramatic or funnier or more theatrical and that sort of thing. But yeah, it just it never stopped. I see how people influenced you along the way, how you sort of tapped into your network, even at a time when you didn't know you had a network. That's right. How you listened and you were willing to do the thing. Like, I mean, someone might say, you know what you should do is go to Seattle. And you're like, yeah, okay, fine. But like you, <laughs> you actually went to Seattle and did the audition and moved forward with that. And, you know, like not, we don't always listen to these ideas that come floating towards us. Um, but you were, you're really passionate about this idea of moving forward and keep doing the juggling. Um, when did you decide to go from, I mean, you, it sounds like you were making money or performer, right? You were entertainer. Um, you're well known in that space. When did you start weaving in the story, the storytelling, the, the message behind it, that it wasn't just, you know, being, being a juggler at a kid's, you know, birthday party? Yeah, no, that's a good question. And it, it came very early on, but it wasn't actualized until later. I could, I could tell you, yeah, when I was 15 or 16 and whatever happened, uh, changed my life. And it did, but it didn't get actualized fully until later. And I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. Uh, I, at the time I had gotten this job at this amusement park and I was the juggler. I was walking around strolling, juggling. And this was an amusement park in Connecticut that had company parties in the summertime. So at one of these parties, uh, Remington, the company that makes shavers, had rented the amusement park for you know, their, their company picnic. Well, at the time, Remington was owned by a guy named Victor Kayam. And Victor Kayam, uh, later the owner of the New England Patriots and sort of this just monolithic corporate figure, at the time, Victor Kayam was really famous in the Northeast for a series of TV commercials where he would stand in front of the camera, he would hold a razor next to his face, look right into the camera and say, I'm Victor Kayam from Remington. I like this razor so much, I bought the company. Everyone knew that line and everyone knew who he was. Well, here I am juggling at the Remington party at this amu amusement park, and I've got a red juggling ball, a blue juggling ball, and a yellow juggling ball. In walks Victor Kayam, and he's with a crowd of handlers. I don't even know how else to describe them. It's a summer day and these guys are all in suits and they're with Victor Kayam. They're bodyguards. They're just his crew, right? Victor Kayam sees me. He walks up to me. I'm at the time, like I said, 15, maybe 16 years old. I can't recall. And he says, hey, juggler, let me see those juggling balls. And I stop and I hand the juggling balls to Victor Kayam. He starts juggling the juggling balls and all of his handlers immediately start, <laughs> they're clapping like this light, you know, you know, golf clap kind of clap or, you know, this polite clap, not golf clap, polite clap. <laughs> and he hands, Victor Kayim hands the juggling balls back to me. He says, those are pretty nice juggling balls. I took all three. I held them next to my face. And I said, you know what? I like these juggling balls so much. I bought the company. Okay. There was a pause. No one laughed. And then Victor Kayim laughed. 
And then everyone laughed. <laughs> you know, all the handlers start laughing and clapping and doing their thing. And in that moment, I thought, oh, that's interesting. When you add in customized messaging, people are entertained beyond just juggling. I didn't even have to juggle. I just held up three juggling balls and I just got this guy's attention, this, you know, epic corporate. I'm you know, sorry. I'm sorry. You're 16 and that's what you learned in that moment. <laughs> I mean, so like, that's, a, that's like an incredible takeaway, right? So, like, like I would have been like, wow, I was, you know, kind of ballsy enough to make that joke. You know what I mean? You're like, well, I, that was really good market research. Look what so, I, look what I just learned. So here's, here's where I get back to the point about, it. I didn't actualize it. I was 16, right? So I realized it. I thought it, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm glad Victor Kayam's handlers didn't kill me. And then it wasn't just the solitary focus of my life was developing customized corporate material or any such thing. I went back to being, you know, and like playing music with my friends and partying and doing whatever. And it didn't really fall into place until later. I would, you know, definitely customize as it were, but it wasn't until years later, I thought, oh, wow, the stories that you're telling can really, really engage people. That didn't come until later. I mean, I, you know, I, I would say that I was uh, I was out of out of acting school probably before I really started to think about how I could use story to my best advantage. So yeah, probably you know early twenties or so when I really started to put that into into effect. But still, it's been a long time that you've had that kind of career now as a storyteller yeah. as well as a juggler. Yeah, it's um, been a while. And what what's the focus up until let's say up until the pandemic? Who were you focusing on? I mean, who was I focusing on? Yeah, like companies? Of- like, is it corporate? Is it like... Yeah, corporate. Co- corporate and associations. It's always been that way mm-hmm. where, you know, the national, whatever, you know, juggling association or coin collecting. I'm just trying, yeah, to, think yeah, of, yeah. I'm trying to think of an association without actually naming one. Uh, well, you know, so- would hire me for a convention. or how, how did that change when the pandemic came? Oh, well, I mean, it, I mean know, ev- everything shut down, right? So yeah. I, I remember the, a bit, there being a span of about 72 hours where I lost all of my business. And I remember calling friends in the industry saying, now what do we do? And everyone's going, I don't know, I'm sitting at home uh, on lockdown. I have no idea what to do. I thought, okay, well, I'll focus on other things, research and writing and those sorts of things. And eventually, piece by piece, as everyone did, building a virtual studio and figuring out you know, what a video switcher was and why I need three cameras and why just having a single light bulb wasn't enough. And you know, what do I do for audio and all those sorts of things? And that's what I did over the pandemic is build up the virtual space. And then, of course, start pitching people and saying, hey, I'm available for virtual as well. So and as you know, that interestingly is going to continue forever. There's always going to be virtual events, I'm sure. And there's also now, of course, live events as well again. But yeah, it all changed. It changed because the the theater changed the the venue changed and there's a different element between being a a a keynote speaker say on the stage or performer on stage and a performer in the virtual realm it's just it's a different theater it's the same performer just in a completely different venue and any any performer worth worth their salt i think is the saying uh knows how to adapt and change and bob and weave depending on mm-hmm. what venue they're in and what audience they're in front of so it just so uh, i'm, I'm about as here. adept at uh at sports ball as you are it sounds uh but here's the analogy i've used a few times let's see if it makes sense you can't take soccer rules and apply it to hockey yeah what what you said absolutely that works they're great. very similar right like if you were just yep. describing them they like there's goals, you're moving an object from one end to the other, there's, you know, forwards and backwards, and I don't know people, but, um, <laughs> but, the, but one's happening at an incredible speed, right? 
yep. and has a stick and things are happening. So one says padding and there's much more physical context. So it, it's like, I think once you accept that it's a, it's you take what you can learn from one and bring it into the other, but you have to learn the rules of the new, new uh, in this case, sport. Um, yeah, it, it took me a moment too to sort of find my feet. I, you did some stuff. Um, you you were presenting uh, for the California Wick Association, which is one of my long term clients since 2020. I've had the pleasure of supporting them, and um, often uh, for any association that I produce for, most of the speakers are people who are members of membership organizations that are really good at what they do, but they're not presenters, not professional, you know, speakers and professional entertainers. But then often we'll get one professional speaker who's been hired and it's often a person I know through national speakers association or who I think I'd like to get to know in this case. And it's so far and above different, right? Because, you know, most time I'm literally just teaching people, okay, you got your laptop. Can you put on some books so that the camera is a little higher and you're not staring down at it? Like I'm really working at that level. And then here you show up <laughs> with this like full, you know, virtual studio. <laughs> but you did some magic and some like you were calling this guy. I mean, you did stuff that I'm behind the scenes and I know for certain that this was not a setup. I That's know right. that these volunteers had no idea what was going on. <laughs> and I was writing that in chat. I'm like, this is actually happening. Like I was trying to like <laughs> express my amazement because you know, people are so jaded. Oh, they chose people and worked it a lot in advance. I was yeah. like, no, I'm the one who helped everyone get set up for this event. So um, part oh, of my, my I talked about your session for weeks and weeks. I've talked about it. Uh, oh, and so, so that really stood out to me because when we talk about like making a connection and being memorable and having engagement in a virtual mm. space, you know, back in March 2020, April 2020, we all thought, nah, I don't know, how do we do that? And, you know, this was just a few months ago. So clearly you'd had some time to work out the how. How do you evolve? I mean, you you had to take what you had done in person. What were some steps? Did you ask other people for help? How did you lean into your um, network? Like, yeah, how did that all work out? It was most definitely network-based without a doubt because there were some people who jumped on virtual right away, okay? And like I said, I did spend a good amount of the very beginning of the pandemic, reading, studying, not about virtual, not about performance, just doing other things. And by then there were some people who had jumped on this really quick and had made their mistakes and had learned their, you know, through the school of hard knocks, figured out some basics. So I definitely turned to my network and asked for some help and advice and support. And I have one friend in particular, he and I have an ongoing joke about how we would Anytime either one of us would buy something, the other person would buy it too. And then we would, you know, in terms of equipment, and then we would, you know, bounce back and forth. So somebody, you know, buys a video switcher. One of us buys a video switcher. The other one buys the exact same one. Some of us buys a, you know, a switching deck, it, it, you know, on and on and on and on and on. And we just figured it out, but it was network-based for sure. And trial and error too. I mean, the video switcher itself, I probably, I, in fact, I definitely, I bought one, then upgraded and then a new one came out and I bought that and sold the, the other two. It was just a constant trial and error experience, all network based without a doubt. Yeah. I, and how did you first get connected with National Speakers Association? Is this something you've been a part yeah. of for a while? Yeah. Well, National Speakers Association, I was a member many years ago and I didn't quite understand what it was. Okay. And I mean, you know, 15 years ago, I think I was a member 10, maybe 12 years ago. I didn't quite understand what it was and by what it was, 
it's obviously national and an association of speakers, but it's not just that. Meaning I'm a member of a number of associations which are just that. They are national, the whatever association. Pay your dues and you're done. National Speakers Association, NSA, is full engagement. It's a full engagement association. You can pay your dues and do nothing. And I will argue that you'll get something out of your in involvement, I guess. I, I, I'm even hesitating because I don't know what you'd get. It's full engagement. If you join NSA, and I, this isn't a pitch to listeners to join, although I would advocate anybody join. If you join and you go to influence the convention and you network and connect with other people, so much as not even network, just so much as meet other people, smile at them, say hi, you're going to get immense amounts out of your, uh, out of your membership. And then if you join a local chapter, you're going to get immense amounts out of your membership. And like, you know, if you do what I've done, you know, join the board of the local association, the local chapter, you're going to get immense amounts. But in each of those two, there's levels of engagement. You could go to influence, sit in your hotel room the entire time, or you could go to influence, go to meetings, go to events, go to the sessions, talk to people, go out for drinks or whatever afterwards. And in the local level, get involved, be on the board, do things, be active, try to recruit more members, try to connect with others, and try to serve other people too. I mean, look at what you've done in terms of making yourself available for other people on the tech side of things, which is completely discombobulating for people. I mean, mm. You know, it, 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 the tech thing is, is bananas for folks to try to wrap their heads around and you've made yourself available. So, I, you know, I often think that as well, meaning there's people in, in the local chapter here in the Northwest who have done a few keynotes. There's people in the local chapter here in the Northwest who have won more Emmys than I can count. Okay, so what can we offer to people at different strata of experience from mm -hmm. our expertise that makes their experience better? It's that full engagement. That's what NSA is about. So I didn't get that until a few years ago when I rejoined again. And I made, I made a commitment to dive in and just be involved, be on the board, show up at Influence, talk to other people in different chapters across the country and just uh, really go full engagement style and see what came of it. And what came of it is, so far, great new friendships, some really good connections, some opportunities, sure, but a sense of community. It's been awesome. What helped make that click a few years ago when you rejoined? What, what led you this time to commit to, to really being more involved? I think a few years ago, I realized that I was being inherently lazy uh, without intending to be lazy. I think that uh, my career has come to me rather than me come to it, if that makes sense. And what I mean is that calls come in and referrals come in, but I don't actively pursue them. And a few years ago, I thought I'm being too passive in terms of the way that I'm approaching all of this. And even recently, I've heightened that, heightened the stakes even more. And I'm like getting way more intensive about, about and intentional about the way that I approach my career. But uh, I think a few years ago, I just realized, wait a minute, am I really going to just passively experience life? That doesn't strike me as being how I want to be. I want to be engaged with life mm -hmm. and with the associations that I'm involved in or the people that I'm networked with. I want to be engaged rather than rather than passive. So I think that's really where that came from was the, just the desire to be more actively engaged, just more actively engaged. I love it. So I want to give a shout out to Dorothy Wilhelm, who is, I think the only surviving founding member of Pacific Northwest NSA chapter. Wow. And she regularly comes to my, uh, my weekly and monthly events. 
and uh, she is turning 90 in January and she's still wow. speaking. And she uh, took a course with me and got certified as a virtual event professional and presents and does all these programming monthly and weekly um, on Zoom and has paid her full fee to present on Zoom. So um, yeah, gives me a real sense of what I could be doing 40 years from now. Absolutely. Um, but I also want to mention that I, I joined NSA in 2015 and I had just left my career as a fundraising professional and I had been a member of that association, um, somewhat involved. Yeah, I gotten sort of more involved over the years. And so I said, you know, I'm not gonna wait 10 years and then join my association. I'm gonna join and I'm gonna commit to going 10 years in a row to the conference and then decide whether it's worth it. And so this, this year was nine years for me. Um, and what happens when you make that level of commitment is by year five, you start to find your place. And this is true for any, this is not just for NSA, for any association people are part of. If you were listening in, I think everything you just said about chapter leadership and, and you know, active engagement, for me, I have actually managed to step aside from all chapter leadership uh, obligations that maybe, maybe in a couple of years I'll do that. Uh, but I host uh, a monthly networking social for uh, national and, uh, and I co-organize the Rainbow Speakers Group for LGBT speakers and our allies. And so you find your, you find your volunteer like leadership opportunity when you stick around more than five years. And I think that's part of what you're seeing is like the more you commit, you start to know people and engage with people. So I feel like a lot of what you just said would translate to you know, probably any kind of you know, association membership uh, experience. Um, who introduced you initially into the world of NSA um, is, is there someone who sort of pointed out, cause I, I think a lot of people don't realize speaking is even something you get paid to do. You know, we, we know about like Tony Robbins level of a successor, but it's hard to sort of imagine like little old me. <laughs> so when did you start to realize like, oh, I can actually get paid to do this? Or was that transition a little easier because you were already being paid as an entertainer? Yeah, it was, it's because I was already being paid as an entertainer. I, I realized that, you know, the, the speaking was a possibility and I don't really recall where I got the NSA connection. I mean, like I mentioned, my mom has been speaking for years and she doesn't speak the way, say, that you and I might speak or do a, a keynote necessarily. She's doing more like, and she's not really speaking at this point anymore, I don't think, professionally. And she wasn't really speaking actively professionally for a main part of her income. She was just doing these presentations um, and, and was doing that for a long time. So I grew up with, with her being very communicative and community-based and driven that way. So I think that was probably where I started thinking about, oh, I could be speaking because I knew my mom was. A little um, inside scoop there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And interestingly, you know, my mom was never a member of National Speakers Association or any such thing. But I think that I just had my sort of um, speaker radar on in a sense and was able to uh, think through, you know, what, what is beyond just the juggling because of my mom's, uh, my mom's involvement. And it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been quite, quite cool to see her journey speaking to groups as well. It's been pretty, pretty fun. I got to see her speak for the first time, maybe seven, six, six years ago. And it was, it was mind boggling. It was like a life changing experience. <laughs> Yeah. Is that mom? Wow. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you I, what happened was she's been speaking forever and has told me she's been speaking forever going back to, I mean, decades. And I just took it for granted. It's my mom. It's like, okay, she's speaking. Uh, well, what happened was I was going to visit my parents on the East coast and my mom said, you know, it's, it's wonderful that you'll be here then because I've got a speaking engagement at the local hospital. And I was like, 
great. I get to see you speak. It's fantastic. She's like, well, it's sold out. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I hope you can get me in, you know? Um, and I was like, wait a minute, my mom sold out, like as if my mom was Metallica or something. Like, what is this? And I went to this hospital that day with her. And lo and behold, a room full of seniors, because her topic is exercising as we age, a room full of seniors had paid like $2 each to come see her. And the room was packed. There was uh, 150 people in the room. And here's my mom, all of about, you know, four foot ten of her, however tall she is, walking around and she's got her little note cards and she's waving at her friends. And I'm in the back of the room just watching her and everyone is like in, in anticipation of her speaking. And she gets up to the front and this woman introduces her. You know, our speaker today is Diane Benning and blah, 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 blah. And, and, and my mom's still just waving at her friends, being all sweet. And as soon as the woman said, please welcome Diane Benick, my mom takes the, the center of the room and looks out at the audience and with this in intensity and passion that's hard to capture here right now, she says as an opening line, if you don't exercise as you age, your friends will read about you in the paper after you've fallen and haven't been able to get yourself up again. And I was like, Oh my God, did my mom just tell a room full of seniors that they're going to die and have their obituary read by their friends if they don't exercise? And she proceeded to do 90, not nine, not 19, 90 minutes for this audience with intensity, with fun, with awesome. musical stories. And I was blown yeah. away. And she gets done with the 90 minutes and just says, you know, thank you. And goes back to waving at her friends with her little note cards and walks off the stage. And I, like everyone's cheering. And I'm like, I couldn't believe what had just happened. So anyway, that's uh, the that's mom. That's really cool. I have to tell you, getting a chance to finally see her do her thing must have been quite a treat for the two of you. Hey, we're great. about to get into my favorite wrap-up question. But before that, cool. let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. All right, here's my favorite wrap-up question. So a year from now, we're going to be connecting again. And I know it's going to happen because we're going to be meeting at Influence in person. And hopefully we remember we had this conversation. I want to know a year from now when I'm talking to you about how the year has gone, what are we going to be celebrating on your behalf? What are you we, most looking forward to in the year ahead? We will hopefully, if the timeline sticks, be holding copies of my new book. Wow. About my topic, Build a Better Now. So as, as we sit here today... Contracts are in place to have the book go into writing mode and production mode and whatnot. And the timeline will be next summer for the release of the Build a Better Now book. And if you and I are standing holding copies of the book, we will be uh, dancing a happy dance at Influence and it'll be awesome. I mean, I can't wait. Yeah. Yeah, oh my too. God. That is really, really, really exciting. And um, I, of course, want to be on your book launch team. As I'm sure many people listening here are going to want to know how to do that. So, by the way, how can people find you and follow your work? Absolutely. Well, gregbenick.com, G-R-E-G-B-E-N-N-I-C-K.com has all the information on me. And I'd be happy to have people follow me there in terms of reading the blog and whatnot. But also, you know, if people want to check out Instagram, I, I post less frequently than I should, but when I post it matters, at Greg Benick, G-R-E-G-B-E-N-N-I-C-K. I'll be posting a lot more this year with book things happening and keynote things happening. So I'm pretty excited about that. And that's probably, those are probably the best ways, the best ways uh, to reach me right now. And I'd be happy awesome. to connect with anybody there anytime. I'm going to get all those links in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Greg, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation.
Thank you. This has been amazing. Thanks for letting me uh, relive and share some stories from the last few years. It's been a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Greg. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at On The Schmooze. Look for episode 351. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources in today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were one of your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance. Look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional who overcame challenges on their way to success. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership and entrepreneurial journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On The Schmooze Podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On The Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.